For October 30th, 2017, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 487. What if they threw a conspiracy and nobody came? This is Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. We're never happier. We're just, we're just delighted when we are hanging out together, strapping on the proton packs, you know, getting into our Ghostbusters jumpsuits, you know, and hanging out, hanging out together, arguing over who is Venkman. Um, no, we're, uh, we're never happier. I'm Venkman, duh. (laughs) Clearly. Um, it's because he's an egghead, right? Exactly. Not because he's Asian. <laughs> uh, the, uh, the uh, topic for this week is Stranger Things. And, uh, and here's what we did. Look, I, I, I don't know if you... <laughs> I don't know how much time you have in your life. I don't know how, what disposable income of time, uh, you have, but we are grown ass men and we could not spend, you know, 10 hours watching a miniseries this whole weekend. So we binge watched with portion control. And on this episode of the Overthinking It podcast, we are going to talk about the first four episodes of stranger things the the second season of the second it's not even really a season um except it's a spooky season the second series of the netflix uh show that dropped this friday uh you know we like the first one i think i'm gonna go out on a limb here and say that we like the second uh the second season as well though that's never exactly what occupies our uh our conversation it's a binge watch with with poor control. So if you've started Stranger Things, you may have gotten over the course of a weekend to four episodes and you can uh, enjoy this. If you haven't, uh, we're going to spoil some things. Put this put this one on pause. But we don't have any knowledge beyond uh, episode four. So this is a, a disclaimer you know, to say that if we speculate or if we make assumptions that turn out later in the show not to be true, we're not sandbagging. We're not leading you on. We only have the knowledge that we have. We've each watched episodes one through four uh, of Stranger Things. All right. So uh, a couple of... Uh well, I guess it was the last episode when we were talking about um, that we were talking about recent scandals without really talking about them, and we ended up uh, talking about TV shows or in movies where people have to keep secrets. And uh, ET was a, is a big touchstone in this regard. And Stranger Things having uh, you know being more or less an homage to ET is. Um, you know, it has a, a similar dynamic of a group of kids who have to keep uh, secret knowledge away from the grownups. And, and we developed a theory when we talked about uh, E.T. Uh, and we talked about it in terms of conspiracy, because there are kind of groups of people who are keeping secrets from other groups of people. So there is a benevolent conspiracy that comprises our heroes and the, uh, you know, the, the kind of good 
that they're trying to do, the, the, the actions that their hero's journey that sort of leads to the defeat of the malevolent conspiracy, which is a, you know, a force or a group of individuals, something like that, uh, that opposes our heroes and is trying to, you know, work some evil in the world. And then we talked about a benign conspiracy, a potentially benign conspiracy of the parents who are kind of clueless. Um, and to the extent that the, the parents are conscripted by the evil conspiracy, the, male- the malevolent conspiracy, they become not be- benign, but malignant right so you have two you have two actors right like uh, uh good guys and bad guys let's say um and then you have a kind of uh you 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 have a kind of um spoiler you have a sort of th- a, a group that could go either way in the form of of the parents and it gets very complicated because the parents have an obligation to protect the children very often the obligation to protect the children comes into direct conflict with uh the ability to let the children self-actualize uh, there's a, a lot of idealization and projection that runs in both directions between the parents and the children that, um, you know, uh, prevents people from seeing each other as people and people start seeing each other as, as sort of functions or kind of idealized versions of a thing. Um, and the, the, uh, and then sometimes the parents are just evil. They just get, you know, they just get zombified by the, by the, uh, evil force, by the malevolent conspiracy. Stranger Things is a show with mu- here's my hypothesis anyway I want to I want to throw this out to you guys and see what you think. Stranger Things is a show with multiple malevolent conspiracies, no benign conspiracy, and Winona Ryder as the incompetent conspiracy. Oh, come on. <laughs> Hmm. Uh, That's not fair. The uh, <laughs> the uh, the um, you know the art project doing mom Winona Ryder uh, with a crazy wall full of Christmas lights in season one and a crazy floor full of uh, tentacles in in season two. Now ha- have I? I mean, I said that to be provocative, and I, it sounds like I've gotten a rise out of you, Pete. So let me throw it to you. Why am I full of it? Well, first of all, it's that Winona Ryder actually accomplishes quite a bit in the first Stranger Things in terms of it's setting true. up she, the Christmas she, lights. That she creates her. the Ouija board. It's true. Yeah, she 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 develops an interdimensional communications platform <laughs> with with her own prototype and takes it immediately, <laughs> not even to beta testing, but to real world use with relative success. Winona Ryder is thoroughly disrespected by everyone and thought to be crazy when she is uh, right. And and I think I wouldn't necessarily say that Winona Ryder is the incompetent conspiracy as much as Winona Ryder is the woman without a conspiracy, is the sort of lone – it's like what if they threw a conspiracy and nobody came? Right. Is, is that uh, <laughs> like and, and that's the real tragedy is that and it's changed a little bit in Stranger Things 2 because in Stranger Things 2, which is how they refer to the second season in the titles in Stranger Things 2, the measure, the measure of the threat that everybody is facing is not as immediate a part of everybody's plot lines. And a lot of the conflicts, at least so far of four episodes in a lot of the conflicts that the individual characters are dealing with are more specific to their relationships among the people that they know 
know and care about, and that there's a lot more conflict within those various sort of scopes that we've discussed. Within the party, there's more conflict. Within the protector parents, there's more conflict. Within even when you you get the sense that there's more conflict in terms of what the crazy Paul Risers of the world are doing, and and how they're trying to cover up for each other's messes or deal with each other's problems. Uh, there's more kind of latitudinal conflict, whereas before there was more longitudinal conflict. Again, that's just where we are in the series right now. But what I would say is that um, it is some comfort in the in the face of the cosmology that we're dealing with here, this, this idea of the harmony of the spheres where one of the spheres is the 1980s and one of the spheres is the great beyond, which is the Stephen King universe of, of the you know, the Red Devils or the Crimson Lords or whatever, King Crimson and what have you, on the other side of the pale with the Dark Tower keeping them all at bay, and, and it is out there, and everything's out in the darkness, and the humans are on our side of the darkness, for the most part. And so you have this sort of reconstituted simulacrum of the 80s, and then you have this wild uh, Stephen King hellscape slash nuclear holocaust parable thing happening on the outside but the the part of the joy and the comfort and the and the pleasure of watching stranger things is watching the benevolent conspiracies coalesce in the face of this sort of vast unknown uh, and the malevolent conspiracies orienting somewhat around the vast unknown and kind of aiding it's claiming that they're trying to fight it but also kind of aiding and abetting it and having this sort of sinister relationship with it but uh, watching the sort of kids team up in the face of it was a big pleasure of stranger things part one and it is the the tragedy of winona Ryder's character that so few people want to be her friend even though she is actually a would would generally be a pretty high pick in any reasonably valued Stranger Things fantasy draft. Because uh, think about it, like, like it's like Maniac Mansion. It's like you don't think you need the person who can put the, the envelope in the microwave, but you do. Or the musician, right? I mean, I, I don't remember my Maniac Mansion well enough, but um, but the you guys know what I'm talking about with regards to Maniac Mansion, which is Stranger Things ish in its respect. Uh, where the point and click adventure game from the nineties. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, way back in the day. This idea being that you're heading into this comical, absurd nightmare scenario, and you get to pick the people that you bring along along the way, and some of them appear to have uh, abilities that are useful, and some of them appear to have abilities that are useless. But in the world that go in, you go into, your preconceived notions of what idea, what abilities are going to be useful and what abilities are going to be useless, they are going to be confounded by what you confront, because that's what is part of turning the world upside down is that the things that you thought weren't important turn out to matter, and the things that you thought would really matter turn out to not to be important. And in that respect, Winona Ryder's capacity to persist despite madness in the face of crafts projects turns out to be really important and accomplish a lot. I mean, and again, I don't know how her drawings are going to turn out in the grand scheme of things and the big conflict at the end, but I would say that it is about... Uh, one of the things that has happened this season is that the idea of a benign conspiracy has broken down because Winona Ryder and the sheriff aren't really working together effectively. Right. And you have Sean Astin, who seems like he's going to have some sort of role, who is – for those of you who haven't watched Stranger Things, again, we're not really that spoilery. We've only gone four episodes in, so maybe you can listen to – Sean Astin is in this season, and he plays a Radio Shack employee, Morning Until I Join You, you know, Peace and Love Radio Shack, uh, who uh, is is uh, dating Winona Ryder – and is this sort of doughy and well-meaning fellow, and his archetype is the grown-up of the child from It so far, wherein he like 
is this this sort of uh, adult Stephen King character who, as a child, talks talks about how he was a child and faced like bad, scary things, uh, and might potentially have some sort of capacity to do this in the future. Again, he may turn out to be a demigorgon himself. I don't even really know. Well, it's, but this I mean, idea, the, the evidence that we have about him is that his advice is terrible, right? Like you don't stand your ground against the tentacle monster because the tentacle monster, you know, creeps into your eye holes. Well, yeah, but at the same time. What would it have really been more effective in the long haul for Will, Will to keep running away is a good question. I think. I mean, he's kind of in a lose-lose scenario. It's it's you're being very results oriented, Matt. What you can really do is put your money on the table with the best hand, and maybe you bust out sometimes. Maybe somebody. Maybe sometimes the smoke ro- smoke monster catches a straight on the river, and you end up getting possessed by a smoke monster. You know, I don't even know uh, whether, but I don't know if you can necessarily dictate your betting patterns based on how that works out. We'll have to watch the rest of the season. Oh my god! You never smoke monster never draw to an inside smoke monster straight. <laughs> okay, can, can I zoom us out for a second? Because yeah. I think what we're talking about here with um, the breakdown of the conspiracy archetypes that we described earlier is that it, the, the, those archetypes, for the most part, held up in season one, but are really breaking down in season two because the show um, has gone beyond uh, any of the, the most of the simple pleasures, the simpler pleasures that we got from season one, and is telling a much darker and much more complicated. Uh, story in this season is that is that fair to say just to put that uh, uh, big idea out there hard to say that it's darker but it's certainly I, w- I would definitely i would say that it has more complicated and intertwined conflict and that there's less hopeful socialization going on that's like reassuring and comforting at this yeah point. and, and yeah. to expand on that let's talk about the character of hopper for a second right okay, yeah, because, yeah yeah um, right because his, his arc is pretty simple in season one he's the sheriff he's trying to figure out what's going on and then he eventually joins up with the kids and helps them out and leaves egos for 11 at the end season two very interesting things going on right he has actually taken 11 on as a surrogate daughter um in the large part to replace the void of the daughter that he lost um and then ostensibly to protect her um but is also you know over smothering her and not letting herself actualize as we talked about before but then the most interesting thing going on is that you know he is still trying to investigate you know what's going on with the weird stuff going on in town but he is arguably in a certain way been co-opted by the malevolent conspiracy by the government people right we see at the end of season one he gets the car he rides off with them um, and then in uh, so far in, in season two, we found out that he is more or less in league with them. Right? he struck a deal, uh, which is that, you know, he he keeps the, the he lets them do their thing. Um, and, uh, it, you know, they, they just have an, an exchange of, uh, of maintaining the status you, quo. You, you stay on that. Sure. You stay on your side of the astral plane. I'll stay on mine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I would almost say the paradigm has of threat has fundamentally shifted. And it feels like it's gone from being more of a Spielbergy, Stephen Kingy kind of horror story to more of a gremlinsy kind of horror story, where there are relationships that are taking place between people who are safe and people who are threatening. It, almost like there's a there's more of a Dantean sense of justice associated with it too, wherein if you approach the problem with good intentions or bad intentions, so far there seems to be some indication that your intentions will be reflected in what happens to you, or or even rather, that's not maybe not even Dantean in the sense of it happening to you, but the sort of intentions of whoever happens to be the sort of aggregate or relevant. Uh, preponderant energy of the intentionality of a given act uh, that tends to affect whether the people involved in it or the things involved in it are good or bad or positive or negative. And 
it's a sense of whether the power relationship between Hopper and Eleven is going to be a good thing or going to be a bad thing, measured not by its relationship with the laboratory or its relationship with her psychic powers, but based on its relationship of whether Hopper is capable of treating Eleven uh, well, capable of parenting her, uh, treating her with sufficient kindness uh, in order to sort of justify the situation and the authority that he has over her, which seems to be very emotionally difficult for him. Uh, but also, yeah, I mean, I guess it is interesting. It's, I mean, can I can I roll out my my so far theory of eleven for this season, Mark? Please? Is that okay to roll it out right now? Yes, let's do it. So, so I had a, and this maybe this will maybe this won't hold for the rest of the season, but for now, it certainly seems the case because there are scenes in this in this season where eleven, who now instead of having a shaved head, has a somewhat unkempt and. Uh, non-binary gendered uh moppy mullet not mullety but like almost almost hockey appropriate haircut i would refer to it as a hockey appropriate haircut where it's like unkempt and it's hanging out over the top of her ears and she sits by herself and she takes this she takes this strip of cloth and in her solemnity and remember she's been a vagrant she's been wandering in the woods and she's encountered the both the sort of vast powers of the hostile world which have scarred her and traumatized her and she's trying to find her way home from this horrible awful fight that she participated in recently that she's been discharged from and as she comes home she encounters this this sheriff who attempts to control her in a way that diminishes her and disrespects her but which the sheriff thinks is necessary for the sort of well-being society in general and presumably for the well-being of this person for whom the sheriff uh, does not see a great deal of individual emotional agency. So this drifter who finds themselves alone in this conflict of large and small uh, um, legal and and force authorities sits alone in the darkness with this strip of fabric and reaches up and just ties it around. I'm like miming. You guys can't see me, but I'm miming, lifting my hands up and pulling my elbows to the side of my head and drawing this fabric. Now, Eleven draws it across her eyes, but if you imagine this gesture and its history, specifically in the context of the early 80s, you might imagine someone pulling a piece of cloth over a moppy, hockey-appropriate haircut, somebody motivated by being oppressed by a society that doesn't understand them, coming back from a war to a home that won't let them in, somebody whose big enemy is a sheriff, somebody who's going to have a sheriff shattering a bunch of glass around them because of the power that they bring that the sheriff never understood. What I'm saying is that Eleven so far in Stranger Things 2 is a female non-binary Rambo, and I love every second of it. I love the intensity. I love how you're really seeing the symbolic vocabulary of early 80s action movies being brought into the Stranger Things universe in a way that doesn't force us to have a commando character saying, you let off some steam by throwing a pipe through somebody's stomach. <laughs> We're seeing it folded into this in a way that I find really interesting. And I, I, I just love the idea that the sh- that Hopper, the sheriff, has gone from being the and the benign conspiracy, the kind of Stephen King sheriff, to also being the Rambo sheriff. He even has the Vietnam box in his basement of old files from Vietnam. He talks about his old Vietnam buddies. And, and this being a presence in... Uh, in everything that's happening. I just love it. So that, that's my 11 theory. Thank you for letting me take that tangent and step away from it and express it. Pete, Mark, your, I appreciate your, your, your uh, audio has changed uh, markedly. Did, did something happen between, did, did the demigorgon get to you? 
So there has actually been a power outage. I, I was so intense about my description of 11 as Rambo that the rainstorm outside became super red and inflamed with smoke monsters. And as there's been some sort of uh, tree down or other sort of external problem, I have no power to my house. I'm now recording my section of the podcast off of a cell phone and Bluetooth headset. So I apologize for the lower quality, but hopefully the extra intensity will make up for it. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, this this is the kind of thing. By the way, let me take this moment to say become a, become a member of Overthinking It because this is the kind of dedication that we bring to the, uh, uh, to the whole enterprise of recording this podcast. When we say that we have not missed, a, uh, missed an episode in nine years, this is the kind of... Uh, in, ingenious, intrepid dedication that we bring to the thing. Overthinkingit.com slash join if you feel like uh, this is an enterprise, that if this is a conspiracy that you want to support uh, with some hard-earned dollars and not just your your um, your listening ears. Now, Pete, I thought you were going to go another direct... Well, I'm sandbagging. I knew the direction you were going to go because we've been talking about this uh, in chat for, for a minute. Um, and I saw a uh, just a fantastic diptych that you posted that I will uh, that I will include in the show notes for this episode of uh, Eleven, you know, pulling up the hoodie and uh, uh, Rambo with the with the hoodie on. But when you talked about like a strip of fabric being tied around the head, and uh, you know. <laughs> Right. And an 80s child hero, you know, with with an ambiguous, ultimately good, but kind of ambiguous at times mentor. Um, You you know, I I was put in mind of one Daniel LaRusso of Reseda, California. Totally, with this, this sort of sacred karate headband that he has. Right, exactly. With the sun, with the, with the like the sunburst that's on it, right? Like the whole, you know. And and I think Eleven uses whatever blindfold is to hand uh, in order to go out across the radio waves or whatever she does, TV snow or radio static or or. Um, or anything like that. I mean, there's definitely something happening here in terms of trauma, right? Like, like uh, Eleven is a war veteran in a, in a certain way, and um, you know, uh, the sheriff is also a war a war veteran in a certain way, and so is Will. He's kind of a kidnap victim, uh, so there's a trauma thing there. And you know, the Winona Ryder sort of lost a son, which is a whole uh, a whole trauma thing, right? Like, there there seems to be something going on about. Uh, um, how you know how we address and cope with bad things happen? I mean, uh, for God's sake, Barb's Barb's parents, right? Like, and just how yeah. their the the their coping mechanism, you know, clinging to sort of shady investigators and things. But the shady investigators are right, right? Like the kooks are always right. They're just uh, the kooks are always right. They're just badly calibrated communicators. I guess that's true of Winona Ryder as well, and so it's why it's not fair for me to call her an incompetent. Conspiracy as a conspirator, as a conspiracy of one, she is very excellent. As a uh, you know, as a recruiter, right? As a conspiracy recruiter, um, this is, I guess, where her uh, her what her her weaknesses lie. But um, dealing dealing with trauma and and something that that we've been talking about just it's come up as several times on the past, the podcast over the last month month and a half or so is how much you take. 
uh, literary trauma, plot trauma as literal and how much you take it as metaphorical for something else, which may be sort of traumatic, but is not, but it doesn't sort of signify in a, in a straightforward way. I think, I think it's clear and I'll bet you'd agree, Mark, that like the kids in this show have gone through some poop. Uh, literal and physical, uh, uh, literal so. and, meta- and, and metaphorical, I suppose. Lit- okay, literal, um, literal and metaphysical. Metaphysical, indeed. Okay, so just uh, one thing to touch upon, it, it was something I said earlier, which is that this show is moving up, up well way past the easier pleasures of the first season, which you can look at, uh, for the most part, as a straightforward um, you know, overcoming obstacles and uh, achieving victory over the, the horrible monster. Um, things at the end appear to have, you know, um, uh, gone to a much better place, with the notable exception, of course, of, of Will Byers vomiting up the little worm, uh, the polywog, I suppose, which which comes back um, later. Uh, that again, like that's like ninety nine percent of Stranger Things episode one. The, the, sem- is, the uh, semi season one semi demi gorgon. Semi Demi Corgan. Ninety nine percent of Stranger Things season one is that more straightforward uh, uh, type of storytelling. Uh, Stranger Things season two, so far, very much so, is okay. Like all that stuff happens, and really, what is the, the horrible, horrible psychological aftermath of that? Um, it, it's it, the pathos that uh, this whole thing evokes. I think is 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 really quite impressive. Um, you feel really, really bad for all these characters um, that were involved in it. And then that I think that transfers some of the guilt then onto the audience for uh, the thrills of the pleasures of the kills and uh, and the danger and the adventure and all that kind of stuff from season one. Well, someone paid a terrible, terrible price for that. Um, so that's, you know, sort of a very more straightforward storytelling thing going on uh, on the surface of the of the childhood trauma and just the, 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 the real pain that people are in um, in season two. Um, the perhaps more interesting thing going on is the subtext, which is that the, the kids are going through puberty, right? Um, all of the sexual, the, the real monster, <laughs> the, the worst monster of them all, the, the monster, with, the, upside the, is down as, yeah, the monster within, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. in season, in season one, you see very, very brief, uh, mentions of this for the younger kids. You know, uh, Mike, uh, clearly has a crush on 11, um, and, uh, and that's not really resolved and, and it hangs over in season two, uh, the, uh, Lucas and, um, and, um, I'm blanking on the other kid's name. Uh, they have a crush on, uh, on Max, um, and, and she joins the party and, you know, the sort of the, 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 the sexual tension, I guess, if you want, if you want to call it that, that continues to play out, uh, over the course of four episodes. Um, but then the other interesting thing in, along this vein then is what's going on with Will. Right. We, we said earlier, the puberty is the monster within. And what happens to Will? Uh, the smoke monster uh, enters all invades all orifices of orifices of his body. Will loses control over his body. Uh, it does strange things that uh, he just can't explain. And, you know, he, that he, he feels cold and it, it prompts him to do irrational things like scribble a lot and, 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 and make a bunch of doodles. Um, so uh, all that is to say Stranger Things season two, at least in a significant part, is about puberty. Makes uh, agree or disagree, guys. Yeah, do a bunch of really emo drawings. I mean, I think it's about puberty 
uh, metaphorically, right? Like where, where it may be about trauma, literally, um, about like, you know, surviving, uh, threats to your life. Literally. I feel like it's about puberty metaphorically. It, it is, uh, but I did notice that like, you know, the, the monster that comes out of Will's body is like a tentacle monster. You know, I, I thought of the, the demigorgon as being the sort of the yonic monster. And this is the, this is the, 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 um, yong monster. The Monster. Yeah, the, the, right. Yeah. Exactly. I was I was trying to find the right term. This is the phallic monster. You know, this is the the stabbing, penetrating, going into your going into your eye holes, um, monster. And yeah, I mean, I think that's good. And and then like the specter of you know the specter of of jealousy, right, is raised a little bit between Lucas and. Um, Oh God! What's his name? Dustin. You're thinking of Dustin. Dustin? Yeah, between Dustin, yeah. Lucas and Dustin, who are a little competitive about Mad Max, uh, right? Who and and I mean, uh, it was a little difficult. It was sort of a puppy love kind of crush sort of thing, or you didn't know if it was this sort of extraordinary, you know, bond that was not uh, not sort of sexual in a pubescent way, but that was sort of deeply emotional between between. Mike and Eleven, um, like sort of long lost twins or something, you know what I mean? Something like that. But, but it, the, the definitely with the scene where, where Eleven causes Max to fall, uh, off of her skateboard is, you know, that is a more, uh, adolescent kind of jealousy, you know, that, that is, is coming up. So these, I mean, these dynamics, uh, these dynamics are coming into play, but that's, but it's not, I'm not sure it's a show about surviving puberty in the same way that, it, that Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a show about surviving adolescence, right? Yeah. It's more about the things that grow in the dark as the model for the monster rather than the underside of society uh, that's been organized in a way that we think is okay but has secret sins. Right. Because it's, we not, about, right, right, right. Yeah. it's not the blue velvet averse. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because Stranger Things 1, it was much, very much like the Cold War, research related to the Cold War. The Russians are still a presence, but it seems much diminished. Now it's about the secret growing vines that are underneath everything uh, and, and the things that are being sort of privately negotiated behind closed doors that should probably be out in the open but can't be for various sorts of biological reasons sometimes, but other reasons also. It's interesting to think of it in terms of Dig Dug, right? I guess I guess the next episode is called Dig Dug, which we yeah. haven't watched yet. So I'm looking forward to seeing that. Uh, by the way, I used to love Dig Dug. It does not hold up. I don't know if you have anybody who disagrees with me is welcome to bring it to the comments on our website. But Dig Dug does not hold up, which was really disappointing for me when I played it in the arcade recently. Uh, as, well, as it well, were, well, as what, were. What was your What was your experience? What was your contemporary experience of Dig Dug? Dig Dug falls into the category of video games from the '80s, wherein the control inputs feel very delayed by contemporary standards, and not just delayed, but the number of control inputs that the game can process at once uh, makes makes you makes the act of kind of hitting the buttons become very rapidly self defeating. Like like Dig Dug, you're supposed to be you're digging around. You know you're in this cross you're in this sideways cross section of the earth. You're digging around the earth. You're digging these tunnels that you then run through, and there are these monsters, and you have to plug the monsters with a hose, and you have to hit the button to pump up the monsters. But when Dig Dug throws out his hose, he's temporarily immobilized. 
he or she. I should say I don't quite know the gender of Dig Dug. I always assumed masculine, but that just reflects more about me than about Dig Dug. So um, I apologize for, for the way I was raised. Uh, but, uh, but, but the idea that, like, if Dig Dug were be, to be made today, Dig Dug would be more agile, and pressing the button would not have such dire consequences. Like, they want you to press the button. It's a fun thing to press the button. One of the fun things about Dig Dug is to hit the button over and over and over again. And the idea that you're just going to sort of stand there throwing your hose out and get killed if you do that, it just says to me that there's kind of like a technological limitation and also a kind of uh, technology of design limitation. That means Dig Dug lags behind more modern video games. Um. There you so, go. That's, so that's more than you ever wanted to hear about Dig Dug. Overthinking it.com. <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe let's use this as an opportunity to talk about the pop culture references um, that we see in uh, season two. I, I think it, 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 I haven't seen season one since, you know, it aired what last summer. It was so much, so long ago. Um, but I feel like uh, season two, maybe for no other reason than because they got a bigger budget and could afford more rights to things, um, kind of double down on the references. We have a ton of overt uh, you know, uh, symbology of the Ghostbusters going on. There are uh, very quick references, of course, to the Terminator. You saw that uh, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger flashes uh, his visage on the screen, right? Um, and the, the aforementioned Dig, Dig Dug video game, you got Dragon's Lair as well. Um, music, I think there was a lot. Uh, music played a pretty heavy role in season one and continues to in season two. Um, we see in other media where references... Uh, and nostalgia are used in kind of throwaway ways. Um, I don't know why Suicide Squad came to mind. I really tried to not think about Suicide Squad, but uh, that did come to mind as a poor use of music to evoke something quickly in a, in a throwaway and cheap fashion that's not really earned. Um, but I think Stranger Things, um, I, I think you probably agree, is that it goes beyond the cheap thrills, the, the cheap callback reference types of things, and then incorporates uh, the references and the other works of pop culture more deeply into its overall uh, creative project. Would you guys agree? Yeah, I definitely think that it has a little more than just authenticity of setting to do with things. Uh, because although we get the title screen in the scratchy VHS poppy quality, much like my own sound quality, which has returned with my power supply, the Ray! video quality of Stranger Things remains pretty high. And also, there's a bit of alienation. There was alienation in season one, too, but there's more alienation in season two between the way the characters look like they are from the 80s versus look like how people might have looked if you photographed them in the 80s. I'm thinking particularly about how the hair seems extra aquanetted, and we have sort of extra floofy hair. And we also have a great pop culture reference in sort of broke-ass poor man's Rob Lowe, who is Mad Max's uh, Camaro-driving brother, I believe, uh, who is himself something of a pop culture reference. This idea that we're not just setting up setting, but we're setting up the context of the vocabulary of symbolism and the context of the cultural environment that this is happening in. Okay, and before before around- we get too far away from something you mentioned, I just want to uh, cash this out a little bit. You said there's a contrast between how people actually look uh, on screen versus uh, what uh, some sort of like lower five version of it, right? And that really plays out in an interesting way on Halloween when their parents take pictures of the kids dressed up as Ghostbusters. Oh yeah, is that what you're talking about? Well, I cash, mean, cash that out a little bit. Okay, so what I was what I was talking about uh, in term what I was talking about was the way that people look on screen as if they were in the 80s versus the way they look on screen when they were in the 80s. And I brought this up in Stranger Things 1, too. If you go back and look at Nightmare on Elm Street 
uh, at the character of Nancy from Nightmare on Elm Street. She does not look anything like the character of Nancy from Stranger Things. And the character of Nancy from Stranger Things is very much a contemporary actress who is reflecting contemporary standards of beauty that is dressing as if she is from the 80s. She is a normcore Nancy. Uh, she is, In particular, she is very, very skinny in a way that did not become really popular until the 90s, that sort of Kate Moss kind of actress generation. And this, to me, lends... And just as Steve Harrington's hair is kind of artificially uh, floofy and his ridiculous mullet in the, in this season in particular, maybe I just notice it more, but seems even more so... Uh, to be engineered to be what it is than the hair at the time, like, say, Johnny Depp in Elm Street might have looked, which did seem a bit more natural. But what you're talking about is also interesting. I'm not saying that that's not what it is. It's a little different, which is that they they pull in and remix the whole paranormal activity idea of which project idea of found footage and video as media. And we get to see the low quality camcorder footage of the kids and the pictures Ooh, of the right. kids yes. through yes. the various cameras that they take, which then has something to say to connect through, of course, the fallacy of imitative form, but, you know, we're not swinging in the big leagues here. It's perhaps not bad if we indulge in that. That, like, we are watching a TV show that is being made with video tools, and there are video tools that exist within the TV show that have a formal relationship with the images that we're currently watching. Uh, but I, I think I would say that it works crosswise in that the, the employment of period-appropriate, at least imitation of period-appropriate visual effects and photography feels like it really grounds Stranger Things and makes it less, and makes it sort of like more immediate and feel like there's more of a fourth wall and I feel more like I'm watching something that's quote-unquote actually happening. Whereas the ways in which it imitates the 80s in kind of mise-en-scene, right? The way that, how the people look when they're on camera, how everything is laid out, how when somebody comes around the corner you know, and stands in the hallway, they are going to stand right in the middle of the appropriate pattern of tiles that that's on the floor on, or the painting on the wall. The role of the paw, right, is huge in a couple of big shots so far in the second season of Stranger Things. That stuff makes me feel like I'm watching a, a play that is set in the 80s, that is sort of using uh, things that we are familiar with from the 80s to color and, and add symbolic depth to the current story. And those things are acting as crosswise to each other. Like, I don't feel like the broke-ass Rob Lowe feels like a real person at all. He, he might have been played by a puppet, and it would probably have a similar effect. <laughs> Although he wouldn't. In the shower scene, which is, of course, you know, he, he looks totally ripped, which is, to his credit, you know, keep on working hard on, on your uh, on your abersizer and your thigh master. Or, that's actually not period-appropriate either. I guess he might be doing aerobics. Was there was there a bow flick? Yeah, he's watching. He's definitely watching those uh, Jane Fonda workout video, workout VHS tapes, right? I think we're in the era of solo flex, but not quite the era of bow flex. Yeah, I was about to say, yeah. The, hey, hey, is VHSC even contemporary? I mean, is that right? You know, the, oh yeah, those the... we had one of those. You did, but uh, I did thought you... it was. I thought it was later. We had a, a oh VHSC was later. Yeah, I thought so, but maybe maybe not. Uh, you know, looking it up really, really fast, it actually was very newly introduced when the events of this play out, which makes sense because uh, Sean Astin of Radio Shack, more than you tell I join you, Radio Shack, uh, is is on the cutting edge. Uh, not the sharp image, but the cutting edge. It came out in 1982. Right. Uh, so so it's, it's still pretty new. If they have a VHS-C JVC camcorder in 
Stranger Things. Note that they don't have the tape adapter to play the VHS cassette player on the VHS on the VCR quite yet. They still have to use the RF connectors. So it's not quite a mass-produced, familiar sort of technology. Winona Ryder has never used it before, so it's new. Uh, whereas I remember we were using stuff like this in the mid to late '80s at my house, uh, into the early '90s, and uh, it was much more familiar at that point. But at yeah. this point, it's trying and special. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, the 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 incorporation, the kind of the the meta text of the video inside the the video is interesting because it is a it is a sort of contemporary move that uh, that is not necessarily like as a matter of representation is not necessarily part of the part of the mainstream. I mean, I'm sure as soon as there were uh, those camcorders, there was an avant garde that was that was doing things like that. But it's um you know and and using sort of film within a film is is a technique. Uh, almost as old as cinema itself but the the uh uh the idea that this is a vernacular the idea of kind of like screens and screens and screens um is you know different from uh uh is different from from what well i don't know i was four at the time or five or you know whatever i probably don't have a super sophisticated memory of the the larger cultural media landscape but it it doesn't seem to be a feature of a lot of the entertainment that you watch from the time i will offer at least one counter example an important one which is the aforementioned ghostbusters if you recall there's a lot of screens and screens going on in ghostbusters so they they record their own advertisement there's the uh, montage sequence uh uh where um um, uh, Dana is working out and there's a bunch of news segments of the Ghostbusters on TV and like a magazine cover, the Atlantic magazine famously asking, do ghosts have civil rights? Um, so it's, it's not entirely out, uh, out of left field, but it is a nice touch though. Yeah. By the time we get to Spaceballs in 1987, this kind of thing is pretty common. <laughs> <laughs> Where they're like rewinding the VHS of Spaceballs that they get from the vending machine. Oh yeah, there, there you go. That's probably yeah. the canonical But that's five years. That's, that's like really... four years after this. Yeah. yeah. Three years, three because it's 84 to 87 yeah um but yeah certainly this kind of like it doesn't feel period appropriate to represent it that way i guess that's the difference right is that are we peer are we dealing with a period appropriate oeuvre or a period appropriate mise-en-scene are we are we talking about a movie or tv show that is from that time or a video that is being taken of events that were taking place at that time Right, it's just a different idea, and Stranger Things is doing both this season more than it was last season, in terms of exploring the edges of that sort of thing. Yeah, and but young Bill Pullman is nowhere to be found, but old Paul Reiser. I was really hoping Mad Max was going to be mad about you, Max, and Paul Reiser was just going to be a really good dig dug player. <laughs> but that's that's neither here nor there. Maybe it's possible. Again, we've only watched the first four episodes. It's very possible that the dig dug high scores are in fact from Paul Reiser and not from the girl on the skateboard. She has yet to confirm. Uh, Max has yet to confirm that she is an arcade ace and i would not be surprised if there were some twist related to that later on in the season but we shall see we <laughs> shall see oh oh here's another reference that uh, i want to check with you pete um okay we have an a, a creature from another world right that invades a suburban house yes and, and eats the cat okay pete, pete fenzel is this or is this not a reference to the tv show alf <laughs> 
Are you telling me that the strangest thing of all is Gordon Shumway? Because I think Gordon Shumway considers himself to be fairly normal and everyone else to be a stranger thing. Uh, but uh, Gordon Shumway, of course, being the real name of Alf, the alien life form. I gotta think that's a that's an Alf joke, right? That he finds an alien, that he finds this alien, he brings it home and it eats the cat. That's gotta be like a deep cut Alf joke. Because let's face really it, in this day and is, age, yeah. the only Alf jokes worth making anymore are deep cut Alf jokes. I want to see your Melmac name check. I want to see references to the ALF TV show, uh, the cartoon show, rather. Uh, I, want, I want to talk about, I want to have, like, parody scenes where aliens are wearing trench coats in the middle of a field and asking about the L.A. Lakers score when they're confronted by the men in black from the U.S. government. Oh, man. Did you guys watch ALF? Yeah. Before you get up for that final snack, I want you to know that I've got your cat. <laughs> <laughs> Alf, and by the way, on the on air uh, from 1986 to 1990, so we were all in the in the age bracket, so we could have seen it while it was contemporaneous. That Alf was one big fat softball thrown straight down the middle of our demographic, <laughs> 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 which is why it had both a live action show. And a cartoon show, uh, and why they're probably going to continue to use them occasionally to advertise products for a gradually aging population. <laughs> I can't wait till Alf starts advertising Rascal scooters. You know that's coming in like thirty years. That Alf's going to be riding around in a in a hover scooter. Uh, but but also like Alf is a great example of the power of the culture to make strange things normal, like the the potential energy in the culture at the time to take strange things and to make them into normal things. Harry and the Hendersons is the sort of companion piece to ALF for me in this regard, although there's a lot of them. Gremlins also, where it's like, oh, the Mogwai could just be part of your family as long as you follow the rules and don't feed it after midnight and don't get it wet. And and that that's not really how things feel now, where we our culture now seems to have more of an inertia towards taking things that are familiar and comfortable and making them into weird, strange things, which of course was happening at the time too. But I don't feel that same. I don't feel like Alf would be fun. I mean, I, I, I'm saying I don't think Alf would be funny if it were to happen now. It would be called American Dad, and I would probably be right. Oh <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, <laughs> uh, man. Although, yeah, so I don't know. I don't know. Um, I, don't, I, I would like to see the dark, the the gritty reboot of Alf, though. Don't you? I mean, don't you think that would be fun? A, a gritty reboot? Would he would he still be a puppet? Is the question, or do you go full CGI yeah. with him? Yeah, it's a, well, yeah, you, because we've crossed over the dinosaurs threshold, the unkind, <laughs> the unkind dinosaurs valley, where they were like, weren't they rubber suit actors with uh, with like animatronically controlled faces, or am I misremembering that? Yeah, yeah, it's that whole Henson Studio technology, right? Just like they had with the Ninja Turtles in the Ninja Turtles movie, and that is is heavily featured in Farscape uh, in Brian Henson, the uh, post Jim Henson Brian Henson project. Right. I think dinosaurs are Henson Studios. I think um, I'm not positive, uh, or at least not Henson Studios, but um, they were. Uh, they were connected. Okay, so Jim Henson died a year before Not the Mama came out. Jim Henson conceived of the show in 1988. And people thought it was a crazy idea. So it's actually Jim Henson's idea, and Brian Henson, his son, executive, produced it with a guy named Mike Jacobs. Okay. So yeah, so you're you're right in that this is part of the whole animatronic face rubber suit uh, timeline. How about a version of Alf in which Alf is the only human, and everybody else is played by puppets and CGI? Would that be too weird? <laughs> Where Alf is just a human in a mask? That was actually and, like, yeah, that was makeup? that was my grad school thesis project. <laughs> what and what was your what was your degree in? <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, exactly. Digital sculpture. 
digital sculpture. <laughs> Alf is nothing if not a digital sculpture. Well, he was analog back in the day, so but everything was analog back then. We lived in an analog society. Hey guys, this is the first Netflix binge show in a while that that I've really been into. I mean, like, so is that like is there is there anything to say about this medium now that we're uh, now that we're watching it? Other than that, we've been like careful to portion control our binge because we're not in a situation where we can just sit down and watch ten hours of television in a in a weekend. Um, like, is it? Do you feel like the the? Mm, do you feel like the the? Um, show has changed creatively as the kind of the idea of the binge watching show has matured or things like that or am i wrong and there was one just last week and i i just didn't uh i wasn't into it or something like that like what do you think about the uh uh what do you think about the the binge ability and the the medium of this show i mean all all i think is that i'm the immortal iron fist the protector of kunlun and the eternal enemy of the hand i guess i did yeah no, Defenders was not good. I mean, it was fine. The Defenders was fine, yeah, but the that, Defenders wasn't a must must watch, is what you're saying. I did watch. I did watch it. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, it's funny that. But we didn't I, podcast about it. But we all watched it. Yeah, and it's funny. It was more a second screen or third screen kind of experience because I was I, like, I had the cell phone and the laptop going while Defenders was on in the background. This is, but like Stranger Things that is compelling, a, huh? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Stranger <laughs> Things is appointment viewing. You know, like I I like turn off the lights in order to watch uh, Stranger things iron fist uh i skipped entirely yeah the la- i mean glow was a thing but we didn't watch glow fast we watched glow slowly <laughs> and i think a lot of people watch glow slowly too uh, i don't know if you can if glow is really a binge watch friendly show i mean it was, no, it, was it didn't have yeah. uh, cliffhangers in the same way that uh pretty much every single episode of, and, of stranger things so far has and also and i mean this is a as a compliment like a lot of the characters in glow were really unlikable right like for for allison brie to be that despicable like you know for on a lot of scores that's an admirable thing for her to do artistically and and you know is admirably executed and then you know mark Marin is just not like uh not a huge tvq guy like he has he has a certain he has a certain kind of charisma but it's not like yeah Yes, let me hang out with Mark Marin all the time because that sounds <laughs> that sounds I like I think he would think that's torture. <laughs> that sounds like it would be well, I mean anyone with me would think it was torture, but it sounds like that sounds like it would be like uh, you know, emotionally easy and nurturing and uh, you know, an un, unmitigated pleasure. Um yeah, so I, I mean, I feel like I mean, I feel like it's different. That that thing, like uh, the binge watch, is like you're 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 the rat with the cocaine pellet. I mean, I talked about it. I talked about it as snackability when I wrote on this uh, before it was a thing on overthinking it, and I, I guess uh, never a bad excuse to link back to that article in the show notes uh, towards the theory of of television snackability, which is a kind of inchoate, but um, still, I, I feel like I was onto something. Argument about the the uh, set of economic incentives in the television business leading to a kind of show that where you want to hit the pellet um, you you want sorry you want to hit the lever for the pellet again uh, right you know right at the end um, 
I, I had heard it called snackability in the food industry. I think it's called sessionability now. The idea of like a food that can become like an eating session, not just like pick one up on the way, but like, you know, sit down at the table with the sleeve of Oreos and like one by one, you know, slowly, uh, slowly devour them. And there's, there's a lot that goes into them. So, um, so like in on this score, guys, at two buttons, and I wonder, uh, if you use them, one is watch credits. And the other is skip intro. Do you do? Does either of you hit either of those buttons? Uh, I, I, I I'll, yeah, I, I we skip the credits. Um, my wife was uh, pretty quick to hit the skip intro thing until uh, I see episode four when I insisted that we uh, well, no, episode one we watched it um, just to kind of you know get ourselves in, into the groove of it. Uh, two and three, she skipped it, and four, I asked for it to be played. Um, because I like the theme song. I like uh, that moment to just like really, you know, get with the groove of things, you know, feel the atmosphere of it and then uh, and then move along. Um, Matt, we were talking earlier. We we're 99 percent sure that, you know, this has been A-B tested to hell and back. And uh, Netflix has all this data that shows that, uh, you know, that the skipping the, the, the intro improves um, the retention viewers but 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 i like it it's so interesting i mean it's so interesting well pete you you answer i have a lot of thoughts about this but but i mean i like to roll my own gears with regards to tv watching and so when i get close to the end of the like when the episode is over i will often preemptively exit 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 (laughs) um so that the next thing doesn't play automatically and then make the decision to go back in and watch the next episode if i want to watch it so it's pretty rare that i that the credits even really get rolling all that much like i might see the first credit or the second credit but i tend to uh exit out of things rather than than let them ride when it comes to streaming video and i always watch the theme song i like the theme song of things um yeah, uh, so all of that, that all of that user research that that's gone into that into that autoplay feature into that sort of infinite content feature, right? Like, and and there you I are. Mean, thwart- sure it still works. I'm not. I'm not the poster child. Oh. Look, I'm the one who gave a, like a solid three and a half star review to Ghost Rider: Spirit of Vengeance. Okay, I'm not <laughs> getting rich in this business. Make things that Pete likes. Yeah, that's that's how you do it. Right? Like, I'm the one who's like, here's how you could make RIPD actually interesting. Nobody. Wa- that's not a question that anybody is asking wait i thought i thought our i thought our contention was that ript was actually interesting that's true i just wish that they had spent more time on the elderly chinese men because i thought that was a really important part of the story (laughs) floating around so here another uh, here's something to keep in mind uh did you guys watch have you guys watched the new ticket all uh No. no i haven't seen it and I only bring it up uh, – so so first, the first thing I want to say is that there's no clearer sign that binge-watching has gone through some sort of transformation than that I, nobody I've talked to has really talked about Ozark. Whereas I felt like if binge watching were still a thing, everybody would have talked more about Ozark. But a lot, of, a lot of people seem to have been watching it, right? Yeah, but it's like, yeah, we're not watching it at the same time. There's no real sense of urgency. People like Jason Bateman. It sounds really good. But – and I'll tell you – I tell you when my tipping point was for it's not Ozark, but Ozark is sort of the end state we're at now where it's like, I'm sure there are enough people watching it in the sort of flow of streaming watching to justify that it continues to get made if it continues to get made. But in terms of it being a house of card esque kind of event uh, or house of cards. So house of cards came out. I want to make sure I get this date right here that house of cards came out. The season one of it was 
do, 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 do. Come on. Give me a, give me that. Give me, give me that information. I don't want the British one. I want the American one. Uh, 2013 was when House of Cards came out. Right. So there's a show that came out that I consider to be the tipping point of binge watching for me. That is the show Sneaky Pete starring uh, Giovanni Ravisi, which uh, boasts a heady 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, let me ask you, do you, have you guys watched Sneaky Pete? No, sir. Nope. Uh, not either. It is a show that has my name in it and has a and has actors in it that I love, like Rob, Ryan Cranston. Uh, Brian Cranston created it. Gianna Ravisi is in it. He's great. It's supposed to be really, really good. I have not watched it. And I kind of think, like, oh, when is that coming out? Or did that get canceled? Like, what happened? So here's what happened to Sneaky Pete. The pilot was released on Amazon in August of 2015. Huh. And got very positive reviews. The rest of the first season came out in January of 2017 on Amazon. And I ask if you guys watched The Tick because The Tick did a similar thing where they floated a pilot that hung out there for a while. Now, I came across that organically and not just off of uh, Wikipedia. But the Tick TV show, the new Tick TV show, which uh, I watched the pilot, wasn't too wowed by it, but I hear that the rest of it might be funnier, which uh, maybe I'll go back and watch the rest of it later. Um, Yeah, the original pilot for the Tick went live on Amazon in August of 2016, and the new season came out just two months ago. So there's a year between when the pilot floated on the Amazon platform and everybody got a chance to watch it if they wanted to and when the actual show comes out. And that says to me... That this idea of we're going to release like this bounteous surge of content and it's going to come out as a big tentpole event and you're going to all watch it when it comes out all in one go. That's not the model that Amazon seems to be going after with releases like this. They seem to be wanting to test to see whether this is like a good addition to a content library maybe or is it more about kind of a sustained flow of viewers? And I mean, I don't know whether Netflix is planning on doing something like that. I haven't encountered Netflix doing anything like that. Certainly – all hundred or so episodes of Ultimate Beastmaster in six different languages all came out at the same time, uh, but um, even though they all depict the same events, uh, so so maybe. But there seem to be the, there seem to be other models for how to handle streaming content and seasons of streaming content that don't necessarily look just like TV conventionally does, but also don't necessarily look like the way that streaming serialized television watching has emerged. Like, there might be further transformations that are already happening. And big ones might be more testing. Obviously, shorter seasons are a part of it. But we might even see something like a show that has individual episodes that come out on an, on a month-by-month basis. What? I mean, I don't know. I'm not in the industry. But it's like it seems like if what they really want to be doing is managing this more as a commodity and less as an event – uh, they're basically saying, like, well, we can undercut movies and TV by making them not events and just making them available whenever. And it's like, well, yeah, but there's, but this is where we get back to this fallacy of things having real underlying value. <laughs> and, and, like, I mean, what are you really paying for? Are you really paying for the underlying content? Are you paying for the event and the experience? Is having a movie in your home kind of defeat the purpose of having a movie uh, or not? And obviously there's different perspectives on this and there's different data that you can look at and different reasons and priorities that it serves. But it's changing, uh, right? And so I, I, how do we binge now? How can we binge? Like, and again, how do we binge now? The, the word just sounds dirty in my mouth to say it, right? Because that's what the marketers want. It's bingeable. It's craveable. I hate it. I hate it when, when, con- when content is called bingeable. It's right. disgusting. Um, it makes me want to retch. 
And that's just because it separates it, – it, it's all about the instrumental role of like plowing through and consuming this thing rather than enjoying it or appreciating it or, or it giving you entertainment and joy and fun. Um, you know, it's like I don't watch the show in order to consume it. I watch the show because I want to feel happy or fa- or scared or sad or because I want to be compelled with interesting ideas. Uh, and so, and again, that's not like highfalutin moralizing. That's just like my relationship with content uh, is not for me to consume it. Uh, I do consume it by virtue of doing it, but as an as a customer, that's not my experience. Uh, my right. experience I, is to enjoy it. I feel uh, like none of us want to envision ourselves as the goose who's being force fed uh, the, the food to produce foie gras. Right. Yeah. That, that's what binge watching uh, evokes for me. Ugh. Yeah. I also don't. Be, I mean, if we, when we talk about binging, I mean, I've talked about this before. This this stuff is such decaf. This stuff is such sanka for for binging relative to like legit. Like I've been listening to the entire Mike Duncan history of Rome podcast, which I recommend. It's a lot of fun, but hours and hours and hours and hours of Roman history. You're just like centuries of it. I'm like neck deep in Constantine the Great right now. And I've just been info dumping the entire third century crisis just straight into my brain with no visuals for, for the last like three weeks. You know, that, that I'll binge that. Sure. That's a binge, but it's a binge of knowledge. And it's also not something that Netflix is necessarily going to be able to compete with, but, um, but it's also not very profitable for Mike Duncan. So there you go. I mean, um, do, do you feel like the the incentive structure here is misaligned, right? The best thing for Netflix would be if we continued to pay for it every month and then never used it. Because the, the cost of bandwidth is not insignificant. You know, it's not what it used to be, but it's it's not insignificant and, and must be among the biggest kind of top-level line items in their budget, like physical infrastructure of, of servers and, and uh, you know, network connections and things like this and and then uh whatever the kind of the cost of the the bandwidth that sort of virtual uh that you know virtual good of the like transmission of things uh across so like wouldn't it be more in their interest if they kept us all hooked like more periodically than than we are well we're in the phase where they have to destroy the competition first before they turn the tap off <laughs> right like that's so at some point maybe i guess i think we all would do, could stand to be a little bit less uh bombarded all the time but i guess yeah like well is netflix even paying for the bit does i guess netflix plays for, pays for bandwidth now and there's the whole conflict of the net neutrality and they'll have to and as as the administration continues to go after net neutrality you're going to see content providers like netflix probably have to pay more to uh isps and telecom companies for using the pipes uh, yeah, they're cut, well. It's yeah, it's a, it's it's not a truck. It's a series of tubes. Like it's a series of underground <laughs> series of underground tubes. You know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, the, I mean, T-Mobile offers free Netflix now, right? Uh, with some of its deals. Ish. Yeah. Ish. I mean, again, never, everything is ever free, obviously. Uh, and T and T-Mobile can not necessarily be said to offer. I've been a T-Mobile customer for. 14 years and i can't necessarily say they ever really offer anything but it's, it's like <laughs> like it works most of the time it's great but it's like i don't i don't consider myself to be blessed by some sort of offer like it's it's i pay for my cell phone um and so but i also don't use those crazy tuesday things that they do the, the point being that it's like you're already seeing internet content being packaged uh, through the products that are being offered by the intermediate companies that are delivering the content, not the companies that are like licensing and and maybe producing and otherwise aggregating and and thus electronically uh, 
What Matt? What would you call? What would you call the difference? Because it's obviously not a series of tubes or a truck full of flash drives. What? How would you, <laughs> without using the word ISP, or how would you characterize the difference between, uh, say, that there was a Netflix that didn't produce any of its own content uh-huh. uh, and that only used content that it purchased uh-huh. and then sent it over the internet? And how would you describe that company versus a company that uh, delivers the bandwidth to your house? And as such, uh, may or may not have the legal authority to like throttle or not throttle the, the the bandwidth based on what the content is. Well, sure. I mean, I would call one a service and the other more like a utility. Well, you would call it utility, but they don't consider themselves. To be <laughs> no, no, they yeah, right. They consider themselves to be a, a just a service as well. Like uh, you know, the the I mean, I feel like it's a utility for a couple of reasons. One is that there's no competition, pretty much, in most markets, or the competition is so nominal, you know, as to be essentially meaningless. Um, the the minimum requirement of not. Uh, you know, the, the minimum requirement of not tripping some sort of antitrust threshold that is, you know, probably set way too low anyway. Um, the, the other thing is that it is impossible to participate in the modern economy without, uh, access to, to the internet in your home. Uh, how, however, you know, however it, it gets, however it sort of comes in. But the, the, um, you know, the, the idea is that like, and this is the problem with content companies, you know, broadly speaking, buying, uh, buying last mile providers of, you know, network connection, right? That, that, uh, uh, really, you should be in control of the the stuff that's that's coming into your house, right? It should be a, a pull relationship, not really a push relationship. And so the the difference between the you know the difference between the Netflixes of the world and the you know Cox Cables or whatever of the 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 whatever Time Warner is called now of the world uh, is that right? Like um, Netflix, Netflix should push, and Time Warner should just lie there. Uh, you know, and have to... <laughs> I, 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 here, okay, okay, okay. So one of the things that listening to history podcasts gets into your head is the idea that uh, that your own that 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 you're the way that you tell a story of a sequence of events with relations to winners and losers um, and also uh the relationship of the way things ought to be with the way things are obviously uh changes with regards to i guess what the level of dynamic control that you assume somebody is currently exerting over what is happening sure like like you can talk about Netflix being the service provider and the ISP being the utility because you want Netflix to be the service provider and you want the ISP to be the utility because that is sort of still being negotiated and and that that's something that people can affect but if you were to look back at this time from the future and it you know perhaps and perhaps like net neutrality just totally died an ugly death in a gutter uh and and you had service and service the idea of like, is there a would there be a benefit? And again, it's like, okay, history is written by the victors. Uh, are we are we going to be telling history primarily from the standpoint of what sort of change we're trying to affect in the time in which we live versus trying to understand what happened now from more of a standpoint of the current uh, sort of language and way of thinking? Um, 
basically what, I, what I'm saying is like when you talk about good Roman emperors versus bad Roman emperors, they're all terrible people <laughs> and none of them should have been in power. They're all awful. They kill lots of innocent people. They're monsters. Uh, even Marcus Aurelius killed a whole lot of German people, probably for no good reason, but he's seen as a good emperor in the context of the story that you're telling about what happened. Now, you could be the sort of Howard Zinn and looking back and trying to revise history. And there's a whole other conversation about history, but I, but I, but the 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 minor the the smaller thing I'm I mean, trying to even, pro- even in like, that right he's not trying to revise history I mean I would say that he would conceive of his project as trying to you know get a get a version of the narrative right that's closer to uh, what a lot of a lot more people the vast majority of people actually experienced right. Well, yeah, I get he wants that correspondence with what actually happened. But when we're talking about Netflix and Comcast, then like what actually happens is so far outside of the realm of human experience that it becomes virtually meaningless because it's all it's all happening in complex computer relationships. Like it's all narrativization. I mean, you would understand it, Matt. Mark would understand it, but I don't. <laughs> like I I can't pick apart the packets that are coming to my computer and distinguish in any sort of narrativizable not narrativizable way like what they're agency is like what they want uh, it's for me it's like i'm going to imprint some sort of narrative on this and it's going to be dictated by kind of the way that these things are presented to me um and i guess it's going to be about how it's socialized rather than how i mean that's that's another thing i guess like direct experience versus the sort of the narrative that affects the broadest interest versus the narrative that you might be able to like learn from I, the thing that I worry about. Here's the thing that I worry about is that I, I, cause, cause this is a huge conversation and I've stepped in the bucket a bunch of times here and said wrong things, but here's the thing that I worry about. I worry about, uh, deliberately weakening the correspondence with how we talk about these things with that which is observable in the interest of being aspirational about how we want it to happen. And I, and I worry primarily about this retroactively, about the past. I, I worry about uh, being so keyed up on wanting the past to have been a certain way that we describe it in the way that we want it to have been and and that we use the notion that this is how it really was without really independently verifying it and and uh, understanding our sort of own way that we're mired in the fiction um, and, what, and what I basically am, what I'm trying to say with regards to things like Netflix is that like I don't necessarily see Netflix as a good guy or a bad guy I see Netflix as a potential winner or loser in, in this sense in this sort of like set like sort of like I'm more interested at the end of the day in whether Netflix wins or loses or how it wins or loses than whether it's the good guy or the bad guy because I don't feel like I have any control over whether it's the good guy or the bad guy and and I also kind of feel like everything that's being said to me with regards to that is going to be so keen to the person who's saying it um it just doesn't interest me as much sometimes, you know? Sure. I don't know. Is, is that weird? Is that strange that that doesn't that, – that it, it's like – I mean, because I, I know who the good guy and the bad guy is in my own mind. You know, I want net neutrality. I strongly support net neutrality. I think all this stuff is nonsense. But I also kind of feel like if I just repeat that over and over again forever and ever, eventually, if that's not what happens – I'm going to arrive at an insufficient understanding of what's going on. Yeah. And then I'm going to be talking about wanting to binge eat, binge watch Sneaky Pete when it's only coming out one episode at a time and being totally out of touch with like how this whole thing is developing. You know, this is, um, this is related. We should probably wrap it. I'm not going to, I'm going to just kind of burrow further down into these tentacle tunnels uh, because I feel like that's just where we need to be right now. I, I went today to a mall. Um, because I decided I'm not a tech douchebag enough and I needed to buy some of those Apple wireless, uh, headphones so that I can be, I can be the guy with the little white antennas sticking out of my ear like Chekhov in, uh, in Wrath of Khan. And, um, 
the uh, except it's you know non-organic inorganic i mean he he had at least his at least his uh ear parasite was a living organism and i i envy him that level of human connect of, of like species to species connection or relationship uh i only have the cold plastic of of the apple airpods in my ear anyway uh in the fancy mall that i went to there is a new amazon bookstore Right. Which I, I was expecting to be miraculous in some way. And I walked in and it's a bookstore with maybe a little extra retail space to devote to their like tablets and e-readers and and, uh, you know, um, voice activated products. And about a quarter of the diversity of titles that you would see in a real bookstore with similar square footage. Well, that's the thing. Right. Here's the thing. Right. Is a bookstore a service or is it a utility? You know, mm. and this is this is what I was reflecting on as as it came here. All the the stocking of the store is, I'm sure, algorithmically generated, right? And they did they actually did a couple of good things, which you know, not that it would have saved them, but I think the best brick and mortar bookstores also did a little bit when they were kind of thinking about how to kind of differentiate their offerings. Um, they uh, there was a section on Amazon that that kind of was like the product carousel. People who bought this also bought like. If you like, you know, and it had the the first Elena Ferrante, uh, My Brilliant Friend, the Neapolitan novel, um, and it was like three other books that you would like if you liked that. Uh, there was one for The Martian. There was one for um, that. What is that? I, I see it Instagrammed all the time, that that uh, book of short, crappy poems about love or something. I, yeah, I don't know. Um, with like line drawings in it. I don't know. And then there were two or three other books of short, crappy poems about, about love. I'll Are put you talking it- about Ted Hughes? Are you talking about Ted Hughes, Matt? <laughs> Zing! No. Late burn. Hashtag later gram. <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, this is all algorithmically generated, right? The entire stock of the store, there's no sort of human curatorial impulse. There's no impulse of a person to communicate uh, with me through... Uh, through any of the selection of of these things, and like what is that you know what does that reflect and it doesn 't reflect i mean and it, well it reflects what 's popular or how people behave well, what shapes that right and like at a certain level it 's turtles all the way down, but you think well, marketing, right? Like positioning, uh, sometimes the luck of the draw, to, you know, path dependent effects, timing, things like this with how things, how things are released and what kind of catches fire, but like also just like how you are communicated at, how you're targeted, uh, um, for the various things. And I, I don't love the idea of a world where that is the only conduit towards, uh, towards putting something in front of me, you know, and that like, um, so what, you know, what is, what is Amazon? Is Amazon a service or is Amazon a, a conduit, right? They're actually a service that's getting into the conduit business. Uh, but their conduitness is sort of tainted by their, their serviceness, uh, in a sense. Anyway, I, I, I don't want to get too far down this rabbit hole, except, except to say that like Pete, I, I definitely hear you about, about not sort of speaking wishfully about the way you think that, uh, the way that you think that these things should be rather than the way that they are um but i also i mean i also think that that you you can have it is useful to have an idea it's useful to have a conversation about the idea about the platonic idea the form of the isp and the form of the netflix you know uh the form of the utility and the form of the service because it 
it does give you tools to kind of organize your thinking around the kind of world that you would like to see. And then, you know, you can sort of work, right? We have to, we, what I'm saying is we have to start eating both ends of this hot dog, right? Like, uh, and, and sort of meet in the middle lady and the tramp, uh, style, perhaps <laughs> me, me, the idealist and, and you, the realist. And, uh, with one with a kind of visionary knowledge of you know the the aim that we have or at least the principles that we have for things like this and the and the other with the kind of real politic of of what uh what the actual real situation is you know i thank you i appreciate it <laughs> and I just also hope that if someday I have kids that I'm able to educate them in all this stuff in ways that I don't understand so that they have a better <laughs> better familiarity with it than I do. That's the hope, right? That's The, the children are the future. If there's one thing that Stranger Things has taught me, it's that I believe the children are our future. <laughs> <laughs> Teach them well and let them lead the way. Show them all the, the polywogs that they possess inside. All right. <laughs> we, we have to call it. You can tell by our punchiness that it's later than our usual ending time. So thanks very much uh, for listening. Uh, thanks to Mark and Pete for podcasting, especially thanks uh, to Pete for sticking with it through uh, the, uh, through the, what, what can only be an ominous um, occurrence of the power outage during the, the stranger things podcast. And hey man, uh, Hey man, Goonies never say die. All right. <laughs> podcasting <laughs> like a champ. Uh, next episode next week. We'll see you then till then visit us on the web at overthink thinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve. Things are in the upside down.